Well, if you're not there again, please, please be there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I forgot to mention, uh, but we had a Friday night. There was a senior uh, banquet for the high school graduates, a high school graduate banquet, I guess. We'll, we'll have a Sunday coming up where we'll recognize all of our high school and college graduates um, on a Sunday morning, but it was a really special time Friday night. There's 12 high school uh, graduates this year, the largest group that I can remember uh, since I've been here, um, and so it was really neat to hear from their parents and sharing and just a, a great time. Patrick gave a charge to students and parents, and it was just a really special evening, so thankful for, thankful for the investment of this church in the lives of the young people. Uh, I've, we've been here personally long enough now that uh, most of those graduates, at least the ones that have been here in this church and grown up in this church, we were, we were here when they were born. This is like the first class uh, that's graduated where we were here for their birth and now to see them graduate from high school. And I'm just thankful for this church and, and, and we have one of those. And so thankful for your investment in, in the children and youth of this, this church body. And, and it was wonderful to see some of the fruit of that uh, the other night and to have others that have come along the way. And so probably half of those uh, there on Friday night have been here basically their whole lives, and the other half have, have come along, and God's brought them into our church body at different times in His providence, and so just a, a real, real blessing. All right, well, we're nearing the end of this letter of, of 1 Corinthians. Uh, I don't know if that seemed like we've been in a long time to you, or if it's flown by, don't tell me. I don't really want to know how, what your perception of that is, uh, but it's certainly been an eventful year as we've walked through um, through this letter. Lord willing, we have two more sermons to go after today, and then we will, we will uh, be done. We're going to move into a series this summer. We're going to look through the Gospel of Luke and those kind of scenes and episodes in Luke's Gospel where Jesus is eating meals with, with people, and so use that to, um, to, to frame our summer months. And then, Lord willing, we'll be in Esther this next fall. And so that's kind of what's coming down the pipe for us in terms of preaching uh, together. So today we come to the climax of this lengthy chapter, 58 verses in 1 Corinthians 15. We get like a two-for-one deal here. It should be 17 chapters, I think, 1 Corinthians. But, but we, we have this, this climax, not just to the chapter, but really to the whole letter. And so there it ends with this note of celebration and victory, and that's the language here. And so when we talk, to, when we talk about victory... Uh, probably one of the most common realms we hear that is that language is in the, victory, in the, in the realm of sports. Uh, I remember as a kid, um, I, when we had TV guides, and you would, if you were like me, you'd go through and circle all of the programs that you didn't want to miss. But there was, there was a show that came on Saturday afternoons, and, and I always circled it, and it, had the, it began with this classic intro, and many of you will recognize, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport which I always thought that was a very strange phrase, even as a kid, but it sounds really weird now. But, but the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, and there was always that ski jumper that just wiped out going over that jump when they, when they said that line, the human drama of athletic competition, and this is, anybody remember the show? ABC's Wide World of Sports. And so this was before 24-hour, all the 24-hour cable sports shows, channels that we have now, uh, this was like a highlight. You got to see some of those sports you didn't get to see other times. And, and it, anyway, I just remember that, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. We have the Summer Olympics coming up, the Tokyo Games. This, this beginning in July. 
and you have the best athletes in their respective sports from all around the world, and they're, they're competing to be victorious, to stand on the top of that podium and to hear their national anthem playing before the whole world. This is what drives them. So we talk about it in sports. We talk about it in the, the realm of warfare, military victory. Um, famously, Sir Winston Churchill, when, when, when he, he gave this powerful call to arms during World War II, when, when Hitler's army was just racing across Europe, seemingly unstoppable, just, just uh, conquering country after country for Nazi Germany. And, and so the survival of Great Britain appeared like it might be uncertain. And so before the House of Commons, he sa- spoke these famous words. You, you ask, what is our policy? I can say... It is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer with one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. And five years later, May 8th, 1945, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, he said he was able to stand again and say, My dear friends, this is your hour. This is not victory of a party or of any class. It's victory of the great British nation as a whole. So we we hear it in those realms, but we also sometimes talk about victory in more personal context. And so if, if, if someone... Uh, is able to break an addiction, you know, smoking cigarettes or some, some, some kind of addiction that's held them for so long or, or overcomes some fear, fear of speaking in public or, or learns, becomes fluent in, a, in another language. We, we, we would describe that achievement as a personal victory. So we use it in that context. And oftentimes we, we're, we, we use the language of victory, but we scale it back and we talk about winning. So if you're, unless you're really overly dramatic, if you're playing Mario Kart with your buddies and you, you win a race, you don't stand up and pronounce, victory is mine or something like that. You say, hey, I won, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and so if you're succeeding in some area of life, we see this in with social media right now, you, you achieve, you earn, you climb the ladder, you, you purchase something, and so you post a picture of a diploma or your, your new corner office or a new sports car, and, and you hashtag winning. You know, this is, this is how, how people talk. And so, but, but winning, victory, it assumes two things. One, it assumes that there's an adversary. Um, the adversary may be other people, it could be your coworkers, you're competing for a promotion, it could be friends, could be foreign armies, could be political opponents, but it assumes that. It, it may be some other kind of power structure, you know, the man, or a big brother, or whatever it is, and so it may, it may be yourself, just personal limits, um, bad habits. So it assumes there's an adversary, and secondly, it, it, we, it assumes that it's better to win than to lose. Um, Given the clear choice, who would, who would choose to lose? Uh, the, the, the certain people are more competitive than others in certain areas of life. Uh, you know who you are. Uh, and if you don't know who you are, we know who you are. Um, and, and we play games with you. But, but there, there's no one who's simply non-competitive. We, we all aspire to win. And so all that's just set up. This is a passage about victory. This is about victory. Victory over the ultimate adversary, though, death. 
That's, what, that's what's at stake here. That's what this is about. This lengthy chapter on the resurrection, it, it, it culminates in this song of victory. The war with death is won. It's, it's won. And so Christ is risen. We've been singing this conquering death and the grave and hell. And we who are in Christ will be raised as well on the last day. And so death loses. Jesus wins. And we win in Him. That's what this is celebrating and, and singing. This is a, a massive cry of victory here at the end of this letter. And so we're going to finish up this chapter this morning minus one verse. We're going to hang on to verse 58 and, and let that kind of, we'll, we'll draw all of this together, uh, this resurrection hope together next Sunday on Mother's Day. And we'll just see the implications of the resurrection for mothers and the rest of us. And so uh, that's our plan for next Sunday. But today I just want to use a very simple outline to, 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 to reflect the flow of the passage here as Paul's laid this argument out. And it's simply this. It's we're going to see our problem, we'll see God's solution, and we'll see Christ's victory. And so I think that'll be obvious as we walk through. But first, our problem. You see this right away in verse 50. So Paul's already made the case, this case for this future bodily resurrection uh, a hope that's inseparable from Christ's past bodily resurrection, but he's saying he's talking mostly about our resurrection, our coming resurrection. And so this chapter, though, it ends, it ends kind of like the closing arguments of a skilled litigator. And so uh, in those closing arguments, it's not, they're not bringing in a whole lot of new information, but, but they're also not just rehashing the same stuff. They're saying things that have already been spoken, but in a, in a clear, more, more direct, and more compelling way. And so that's what he's doing here. Or, uh, so look at verse 50. And maybe, maybe the courtroom analogy isn't the best, so maybe it's better to think, and I, I think this fits as well, like Paul's like a patient dad explaining something to his children. Um, my dad uh, was, is uh, good at math. He was a math, he majored in math in college. Uh, and, and so I did not inherit the math gene from my father. If there is such a thing as a math gene, I inherited the non-math gene from my mother. Um, and so I remember many nights, uh, my mom usually helped me with school if I needed help, but math was one of those areas she didn't help me with. So I, I would have to wait for my dad to get home from work and he would patiently, uh, try to be patient and helping me work through algebra and geometry, whatever minimal level of math that I got through in high school, um, and work through those problems. Thankfully, I married a skilled mathematician. And so she does this with our children now. Um, they don't even dare come to me to ask about math problems. But, but I, I remember just staring at those problems and trying to make sense of them, you know, my forehead and my hand, and just so frustrated and exasperated by trying to get this. And my dad just kind of showing me how to work the problem, and I wouldn't get it. And he said, all right, let's, let's do it again. And it just, again, and eventually after many, many attempts, I, I would sort of get it. And the lights would come on enough where I could, okay, I, can, I, think I, I think I got it. And, of course, I lost it, like, almost immediately but, and never recovered it. Uh, but, but Paul, I think about that. Like, he's like a patient dad. He's trying to explain this truth of the resurrection to people who aren't, just, who aren't getting it, he, to, to, to work this problem again with his children. And so he, he's trying to help them understand, and he's sort of anticipating in verse 50 that they still don't get it even after all he said to them. In this letter, so he says to them, I, I tell you this, brothers. I tell you this, brothers. And it's probably better translated something like this. What, what I mean is this, brothers. 
Let me, this is, this is it. And so let me, here's some more explanation. The first thing he wants to make clear for them again is the absolute necessity of resurrection. Because they're saying, no, we don't believe it. We don't want it. We don't think it's necessary. This is not something that's in our future. And he said, no, this is absolutely necessary because we, we have this problem. And here's the problem, verse 50. What I mean is this, brothers. This is what I'm talking about. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So he explains our problem, our, our need, our lack, first in terms of inheritance. So he's saying there's, a, there's an inheritance that only comes to heirs. And so he says, we, how, how, how will we inherit this future kingdom? To, to whom will the kingdom of God to come? To whom will it belong? And Paul says, that's easy. Here it is. that The heirs are those to whom God's going to give a new body. Not flesh and blood, not mortal, not perishable, but immortal, imperishable. That, would, that which matches the world to come. And then he, then he, uses, he says something similar. Look down at verse 53, but it's in a, he uses a different metaphor. And, and, and uh, Ron, I don't know if you're using New American Standard, but I don't know where Ron is. He never okay, thank you. Hey, there you are. Uh, but, it, but I like the, 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 the language get, draws this out, this metaphor out even more clearly. But it's not, it's not heirs and inheritances. It's, it's having the right clothing. Clothe yourself. Put on. So we, we saw the, many of you saw the rocket launch um, uh, a week or so ago and launching those four astronauts into space to live on the International Space Station for uh, a season. And so when we shoot astronauts into orbit, they have to be dressed appropriately, right? They have to have that that protective suit that can withstand all the pressures and, and the challenges of life and that, kind of that hard vacuum of space, or they at least have to be encapsulated in a, in a vehicle that is kind of like that clothing. And so, or you go down deep into the ocean, same thing. You have to, you have to in, a, in a foreign environment like that, you need special equipment. And so Paul's saying, these bodies, they're not suited for that. They're not suited for the future kingdom. These bodies will not do and so we're, we're, we're going to be launched, as it were, into a place where that, that requires special equipment. And so he says in verse 53, for this, this perishable body must, has to, put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Our present bodies, these physical bodies that are born in the image we saw last week of the man of dust, verse 49. These bodies that are subject to disease and decay and, and to death and to decomposition, these, these bodies, they must, they must be transformed to bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. And so there's going to be this great change that, that will take place, that has to take place, a great transformation. And so, and, and it's interesting, what does he do here? He basically, I, I, I was thinking about this back to verse 50 here. He takes the Corinthians argument that they're using and he flips it around and turns it on them. And so their, their argument against the resurrection has basically been, hey, Paul, flesh and blood, they cannot possibly inherit the kingdom. You can't tell me that these bodies that are the source of all the problems in our world and our lives are going to be in the kingdom. No, no, no. It's only our spirits, our souls that are liberated from our bodies that are going to be with the Lord. So, so flesh and blood can't inherit. And then Paul comes back and said, um, says, no, 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 no. You're, you're right. Flesh and blood won't inherit the kingdom. But these, these mortal bodies are not fit for the, for, the, for the kingdom to come. But you're wrong in assuming that resurrection simply means resuscitation. 
No, you're, you're, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the radical transformation of your bodies to make them fit for this, this new age. Our bodies of flesh and blood change into something else, from mortal to immortal, from perishable to imperishable. And so I, all that, I just come back, and so what he's saying is here's, here's our problem, and we need to know, we need to own our problem, our need. If we're going to understand and embrace and apprehend and, and anticipate God's solution, we need to own our problem. But this is a challenge for us, if we're honest, and this is a challenge for our culture. Our culture is, has this distorted and unhealthy obsession with, with preserving these bodies, this is all that we're looking at. We're kind of swung so far the other way in some ways from that Greek context that we have whole industries that are thriving and booming in, in our context that are fueled by the, essentially the desire to make these bodies imperishable. We're doing all that we can to fight mortality. And so we're trying to transform ourselves and modify ourselves to be immortal. Or at least to live in denial of, of the reality that these bodies are decaying and are dying. And so uh, we, and we, and we live with shame over our bodies. Even Christians, we, we, we have this, this obsession with our physical bodies. And, and it leads to all kinds of distorted perceptions about ourselves and about others. And how we treat one another and judge one another. So we have all of this distortion in our thinking and confusion and uh, as we think about the bodies, and people do crazy things, insane you know, workouts and insane diet regimens and cosmetic surgeries and all kinds of pills that people take. And so uh, a good and healthy desire to steward our bodies and to enhance our lives, I mean, that's fine, that's good, that's right, but it, it can morph into this almost religious obsession with our bodies, and we see this all over the place today. And so these extreme measures that are taken essentially to secure some kind of self-salvation. And so, but none of the, listen, none of those things make us any less perishable. We are perishable. These bodies are not, are not sustainable for eternity. And so we have a problem. The, the, these bodies aren't going to cut it. These bodies are mortal. These bodies are perishable. And the solution to the problem, it's not found in us. It's not in us getting the right recipe and getting the right workout and the right diet and the right this and that and the right surgery and the right medical technology. No, we need a solution that's outside of us. We need God's solution. And that's where he goes next. And so God's solution is not to preserve these bodies and make them last. It's not to dispose of these bodies. It is to raise and radically transform them. And that's where he... That's what we see next. And so here's God. So we see our problem. We see God's solution. Verse 51. He says, behold, behold, see, get this, listen. Ron read a moment ago. He's arresting their attention, getting our attention. He says, I tell you a mystery. Now, don't get thrown off by the word mystery here. Um, it just simply means, I tell you, new information. There's this is. Mystery in this sense, it's, it's something that was previously concealed, now it's being revealed. And so here's new information, something that wasn't clear before, but now is being made clear to you by the word of the Lord. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Those words that are emblazoned on many a church nursery uh, wall, attempted church humor. Um, 
In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. What's the mystery? What's the new information? It's that not all believers in Jesus will die. Some will actually be alive when Christ returns. And when he returns, there's going to be this transformation of the dead and the living at that moment. So we shall not all sleep. That sleep is that euphemism for death that we've seen already in this chapter. And so most, not all, will die and be raised when Christ returns. But some will be alive when he returns for his own. And yet he says, we shall all be changed. So this change, it's going to be universal. It's going to be universal. Whether dead or alive, we will be marvelously transformed on that day. It's universal. It's also going to be instantaneous. Notice that verse 52. In a, in a moment. The word in Greek is atomos. We get our word atom from this. And so it, it literally means something that's uncut. And so if you think about reducing something to the smallest kind of possible element that you, you can't cut it. You can't divide it in two. It's too small. It's an, un, it's an uncuttable moment of time. In just a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the time it takes you to blink, for one eyelid to meet the other eyelid, it, it's not going to be some drawn-out process where we just kind of gradually morph into what we will be. It is, it is in a split second, we might say. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's all it's going to take for us to be thoroughly gloriously transformed to be like our Savior in His glorified body. In a moment. And this universal, instantaneous change will happen at that last trumpet. A trumpet will sound in a flash. In a moment, we will all be changed. Now, he doesn't give any explanation here of the trumpet here in 1 Corinthians. We, we can see more detail in 1 Thessalonians. We'll turn there with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And you'll see the, the obvious parallels here in this letter. First uh, Thessalonians 4, verse 15. Well, let's start reading in verse 13, actually. So verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you were here with us last week, this is exactly what he was saying last week. This is his point. Is, is Christ died and rose, and if you are in him, you will most certainly be raised to new life in Jesus and by Jesus. And so then he goes on, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Same truth we have here in 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus returns, some believers will have died, some will be alive. And he says, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So when Christ comes again for us, that's when the transformation is going to take place. That's what he's saying. That's when the dead in Christ will be raised from the grave, and those who are alive as believers uh, will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord and will be changed in an instant to be with the Lord 
forever. We often call this the rapture of the church. And so that's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15. And so he doesn't tell us this to get us all worked up in knots and to just evoke all these questions and what ifs and all these possibilities and so we can argue with one another about eschatology. And I know there are other interpretations and reasonable interpretations of, of passages, of these, both of these passages. But what does he tell us this for? We go back to 1 Thessalonians. He tells us this, and he's telling this to the Corinthians, to enliven our hope. To, to enliven our hope. To, because as, he see, as we see people dying, he doesn't want us to grieve as, those, as others do. Grieve as those who have no hope. He wants us to be hopeful people. He doesn't say, don't grieve death. It's not what he's saying. I know that sometimes that, that, that verse gets ripped out of context and it's like it's wrong and sinful to grieve. That's not what he's saying. Death is a real enemy, it's a, it, but it's a defeated enemy. It's, it's, a, it's a real foe, though. So lament is the, is, a, is the right response, but not utter despair. We are people of hope because of the resurrection. We have living hope, even in the face of death. And so, so we see our problem. We see God's solution. And now let's see and revel in Christ's victory. Verse 54. He goes on, When the, when the perishable puts on the imperishable... And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. <laughs> I love this. He's saying all of Bible history excuse me, has been looking forward to this day, to this moment. And, and this day we're talking about, that, that there are promises we find in the Old Testament that have yet to been fulfilled and, and, and so when this day arrives that we're talking about here, he says, this is when it will have come to pass. This is, this, it will have been fulfilled what is written in this day. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's, that's what's written. This, that's what's written in Scripture. And so we see this in Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 8. And just listen. He's, Isaiah says, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It's going to happen, God says. And Paul says when that day, when this, when this day occurs, that he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15, that will have come to pass. What is written, what God has promised will have been fulfilled. Death is swallowed up. It's it's, it's completely consumed, completely consumed by resurrection victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Remember back in verse 26 of this same chapter, what, what Paul calls death, he says it's that last enemy. It's the last enemy. We can identify, I think, with what he means by that title, can't we? I mean, we, we, what a terrible opponent death has been what a terrible enemy death is every time death has entered the ring against us it's one our loved ones have fallen and death still stands our friends our mothers our fathers our siblings our children they've fallen and death has defeated them to be sure sometimes we seem to prevail for a round or two. Um, the treatment works. We go into remission. 
The doctors are able to repair the artery. The infection's able to be treated. We survive our tour of duty when others fall to enemy bullets. Death swung at us, and we, we dodged the blow, it seems, at least this time. But we know, we know, don't we? Eventually, death will win the fight. Death will get the W in their column momentarily. But Paul says, not for long, not for long. Because death has already met his match. Death has already sustained a fatal blow, and it will die. Very early on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, something we commemorate every Lord's Day when we gather, something we give special thought to on Easter Sunday, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead, and buried, broke the bonds of death forever. Rose in glorious victory. And so Paul, through this chapter, he's connecting that to this hope that we have. And so when the last trumpet sounds and he comes back, for all of us who believe in him, those who've died, those who, who are alive at his return, the victory of the risen Christ over death will swallow up and consume, completely consume death for you and me too. As we join him in, in the resurrection of our own, that's what he's declaring here. And this is why Paul can sing, even now, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, in your, even in your English translations, that's, that's indented there. But it's, it's in poetic form. It's a song. It's this taunting song. It's like, na 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 I mean, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You've... You have harassed us and you have, you have tortured us and you've plagued us and you've, you've made us miserable for all of these centuries, for the millennia now since Adam fell. Death has been at our heels and terrorizing us. And now we have this moment of victory and we say, where's your sting? Where's your, where's your victory? Because that, when that day comes, we're going to be able to taunt this enemy that's brought so much heartache. And so much loss and so much pain. So deep, such deep sadness. And even now though, while death remains an enemy, a defeated enemy, but an enemy, it's indiscertain. And so we can sing by faith now this same song. Where's your victory? Where's your sting? And then notice what he says, verse 56. Death, death, where's your sting? And he says, verse 56, the sting of death sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ the sting of death is sin so the sting of death it's 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 I want to be careful because I don't want to minimize this but it's more than simply the emotional pain of death um, it, it, it that it hurts now it it hurts but it's more than that. That's not the full extent and the, or the essence of the sting. He says the poison that's in death, the poison that's behind all of that hurt is sin. It's sin. Sin is what brought death into our human existence and experience. Sin is what's behind all of the misery and all of the loss that's left in the wake of death. And so the only way to get rid of death is to deal with the problem of sin. That's what he's saying. So the sting death is sin and the power of sin is the law what in the world does that mean 
What are you saying, Paul? Well, he, he does not mean that there's something wrong, there's something sinful with the law. That's not what he's saying. With the law of God, the law of God is holy, it's perfect. But there's something wrong with us. And so here's, here's how law that's good is the power of sin. And so when God tells us through his law, uh, here's what the standard is. How do sinners respond to that? God says, this is wrong. Don't step across that line. What do we, what do we want to do? Step across the line. That's, and in that way, it's the power of sin. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 7. Let's, let's, let's turn there with me and, and, and look at Romans 7 with me. We see this and Paul really opens this up for us in Romans 7. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans 7. Verse 7, he says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now what does he mean by that? What he's saying is, I felt like a living man. I, I, I felt okay with myself until I came face to face with the law of God. And then, then it slew me. It killed me. It, it showed me for who I really am. That's what he's saying. That's how he died. He goes on. So the law, look down at verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So what he's saying is this, in both passages, you put it together. He's saying the law, it has zero power to transform us. That's not its power. Its power is to expose us and to condemn us and to push us to, to, to the Lord. So I think uh, my grandmother, I remember uh, when I visit her, she had this cosmetic, I guess it was, I don't know if it's called a cosmetic mirror. That's what she would put on her makeup in front of this mirror, you know, clean her face off at night and all that stuff. And it sat on this little dressing table. It was also the playroom, her little dressing room. And, and, and it had these like bright lights and it was magnified. I mean, like majorly magnified. And so as kids, we just thought that was the funniest thing to, you know, look in this mirror. But it showed you, it showed you everything. <laughs> and so you saw, I could just, I can only imagine looking at it now as a 43-year-old adult, it would be hideous. And so you see, you see all the wrinkles, you see all those large, you know, nasty pores, and you see all those unwanted hairs that grow in strange places other than my head and, and pimples and scars and dirt and all that stuff. And so, but what did that mirror? It's giving you this good, honest, clear, magnified picture of your actual face, of your actual self. So you look at that mirror and you go, yuck, <laughs> that's, that's awful. <laughs> and so it is with the law of God. So it's, it's, it's power, the power that the law has, this good law has, is to give us this honest, clear, magnified view of our actual selves. And the hope is that we look in the mirror and go, yuck, help, I need help with this. 
And so, but, it's, but it's absolutely crazy for someone to, to say, you know, I'm going to get to heaven by working hard and obeying the law of God because that's not what the law was ever intended to do, provide a means. It's like saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that mirror off the, off the counter and I'm going to use it to scrub my face and rub it all over me to, to clean me up. And you're like, that's, that's idiocy. That's not what a mirror is intended to do. But that's what some people try to do with the law, with the commandments. They try to think, this is the means. This is how I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to get after it. And, and God says, no, 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 no. The law has no power to do that. It was never intended to do that. It was meant to show you the problem and point you to God's solution. And so the only way to be saved is for the, for the condemnation of the law towards us, for our sin to be answered in full. That, 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 that someone would take upon himself the full condemnation of our law-breaking, of our sin in our place, and perfectly fulfill it by obeying the law for us. Pay for our sins, transform us, so that we now have a new nature that delights in the law of God in our inner man. And what is, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. So he says, the sting of death and the, the power of sin is the law. And here's the climax. But thanks be to God who, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this problem. God has provided the solution and Christ has won the victory for us. That's what, that's what he's saying. And so notice... And notice there's a sense in which though we're waiting for resurrection day, there's this future prospect and we're leaning and hoping and yearning for that. Come Lord Jesus. There's also the sense that we've experienced a measure of this victory now. And so he says in verse 57, notice, but thanks be to God, not who will give us, but who gives us, present tense, right now, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Believer in Jesus, have your sins already been forgiven completely yes yes absolutely has the law's condemnation upon you already been completely removed yes has jesus already satisfied and already answered the law's claims upon you yes have you already been set free from slavery to sin and to satan yes have you already been transferred out of the kingdom and the domain of darkness into that of God's own kingdom spiritually? Yes. So, so when, when, when is all of this, though, going to be gloriously and publicly and, and unmistakably declared and demonstrated? When is that going to happen? It's going to be the day when Jesus comes and all the dead are raised incorruptible and all those who are mortal and living at the time are, are, are transformed into immortality. And so we will know, we will know in the physical realm, in every realm, what we know now in the spiritual realm. So right now by faith, we, we know that we are forgiven. We can have assurance of that. We have a new nature, and we are free in terms of a desire to please God. But we still struggle with the flesh every day, don't we? Oh, and we, we know the presence of indwelling sin. And we, 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 we know that what it is to stumble and what it is to fail and what it is to fall in so many ways. 
words we speak and attitudes we have and things we do, things we don't do. This is, this is us. But the good news this morning, it's this, is there is a glorious day coming when your physical nature will match your spiritual nature. And the struggle will be over and done. And not only will death have been swallowed up, but so will sin, and so will, will the condemning power of the law. And so it will be ultimate freedom, ultimate victory. And it's a God-provided, Christ-won victory. Notice this, it's, it's a Christocentric victory. Don't forget that. God gives the victory, and how does he do it? It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ Jesus that we have this victory. But listen, in Christ, we have this victory. It's, it's secure. And so I, I, let's go back as we conclude and back to verse 55. Let's end on this taunting song. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I didn't mention this earlier, but he has in mind another Old Testament passage there. He's pulling this out of the reservoir of his understanding of, of God's revelation. And so back in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, we say, see a similar kind of taunting song in the context of death. And so the context of, Isaiah, of Hosea 13 is God's judgment on Ephraim because of their idolatry. And so in that context, he says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Death, where are your thorns? Death, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. What's he doing in that context? He's calling forth death. He's, it's, it's a context of judgment. He's saying, where are your thorns? Where are your stings? I will have no compassion on them. Judge them. But for, for Ephraim, Ephraim, death was this, this instrument of judgment. And God's saying, though, on this day, 1 Corinthians 15, on this day, it's not going to be a day of judgment. It's a day of victory for his people. A victory because, and so it's a day where there's this deliverance that's demonstrated, and we're going to actually be able to taunt death, sing this taunting song to death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? You have nothing for us anymore. You're done. And you want to know why? You want to know why we're going to be able to sing the song of victory? Is it because we were, we were so much better than Ephraim was? Is it because now God, he's just, he's kind of lightened up as time's gone on. and He's not as stringent. And so now we can sing this as a song of victory. Is that what it is? No. It's because the judgment that's being called down by God and Hosea chapter 13 has already been experienced by someone on our behalf. The Lord Jesus took our judgment upon himself at the cross. There is none, none left for us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So death has no victory in our case. It has no sting. And what and this is the reason we have to celebrate. We, we have a problem. We've seen this. Flesh and blood, this, it cannot inherit the coming kingdom. God has provided a solution. The resurrection, transformation of our bodies. And the victory and that hope of victory, it's already secure in Christ. Because what? The king of that coming kingdom came 
and he took on flesh and blood. He took on flesh and blood. The, perish, the imperishable one became perishable on our behalf. The immortal one became mortal on our behalf. The, and, 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 and to absorb that sting of death for us. One commentator says it, it's, it's venom. Death's venom has been absorbed by Christ, drained of its potency, so that the victory over death now belongs to God and to God's people who benefit from it. He took the power of sin by fulfilling the law on our behalf. Praise the Lord. And this is, this is why he can say thanks, thank, and why we can say thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the good news that is ours in your Son and through your Son. Thank you, Lord, that for, for the future that is ours, not because of anything we've done, certainly not anything that we deserve, but just because you've loved us and you've saved us. I pray that, Lord, you would give us the wisdom we need to live our lives in light of this future hope of resurrection and that our lives would, would demonstrate our faith and confidence in you and in the future that you've promised to us. And, Lord, I pray for, for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, Lord, that doesn't know this hope, they've not trusted in your Son. I pray that even today they would look to Christ and to him alone for this hope and to have right standing before you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the victory that is ours in him. Thank you for our Savior, our King, our loving shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>